we pick it up in verse 1 where we read this. Then he, that is Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom in which is given to him, and that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could, do, he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Okay, so here in these first few verses, verses 1 through 6, we have Jesus going to Nazareth, where he's from. I mean, the context, of course, is Jesus. And where he says, he's perfect and sinless. So for the community to have heard of Jesus, I mean, they grew up in Nazareth, the village, and there he is, and he's the best guy to have your carpentry work done with, right? Like, he's the best business person you could work with. He's the fairest craftsman or whatever trade skill. You could never bring a reproach on Jesus. There's not one person in Nazareth that could bring an accusation against Jesus from one, if you would say, relevant to us in junior high or high school or college or in the community. Remember, the law of God in the Old Testament had three elements. The Ten Commandments, which is personal, the moral law. The civil law of citizens and the the law that guided and governed the nation, like this is acceptable, this is unacceptable. If you do this, this is the this is the crime, this is the consequence, this is how this works. And then the religious law, which was symbolic with the feast and whatnot for the Jewish people uh, in that Mosaic covenant with the nation of Israel that God made with Moses. And that part of the law, Jesus fulfills. It was all symbolic of the things that Jesus would do or is going to do in his second coming. So Jesus fulfills the law. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I came to cancel the law of God and the prophets, but I came to fulfill the law of God. And so he's the perfect citizen. So in Adam, we're, we all come from Adam and we're all born in sin from the head of the race, Adam and Eve. We have a sinful nature and we all fall short. We all fail. We all come short of perfection. The law, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, is our tutor to bring us to Christ. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and he fulfills it perfectly and thus through our faith in Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he made clear that's the way we come to God, through, through him fulfilling the law. So again, I mentioned this Saturday night, but this is the gospel. But his death on the cross is in the, our place for our guilt before God in the law. So he dies for our sins. But through our faith in him, the righteous life that he lived as a perfect citizen is reckoned to our account before God. So God forgives us of our sins. That's the mercy, and then the grace is he sees us the way he sees the Father with that perfect sinless life, excuse me, the way he sees the Son with that perfect sinless life that he lived. I give that background because when Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, these people that rejected him, that marveled like, it's just Jesus the carpenter, like, who's he to be doing? Like, we grew up with Jesus. There's nothing special about Jesus. That's their thinking. That's how they're approaching it. And Yet they, they can't accuse him of anything. Even, you know, again, we've seen on Saturday nights where Pilate said three times last, in the text last week in Luke 23, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man. Jesus is completely above reproach. And so even here in the own community that he grew up in, as they reject him, we know that no one can say, hey, remember when we went to 7-Eleven and sold baseball cards together? 
Or remember when we vandalized, the, you know, the public bathroom down there at 56th Street or whatever, and, you know, you broke the toilet and you thought it was funny. And remember when we got those guys to buy us liquor over here? We did. You remember when he smoked pot at that party, you know, the kegger party in Huntington? You could never say that about Jesus. He didn't do it. He's above reproach. Completely. We need to understand that. And they just, they were offended at him. His city rejected him. He was rejected by his own. And he says a prophet. So he takes the application from what they're doing to him. And I, I believe there's a pretty valid principle that we find in our own life. When someone gives their life to Christ and they say that, you know, because the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation and old things have passed away, right? We're born again of his spirit and we get a new nature. And you go home from a Billy Graham crusade or you go home from a Harvest crusade back, you know, back in the day, Billy, and, or you go home from church and having prayed to receive the Lord. People are like, oh, we've seen this and we've heard this. You start to live your life for Christ and you say, and, you know, you're shining for the Lord and you're like, hey, so I'm going to church and we're reading the Bible and like, oh, look at you and this and that. And hey, man, I know you. Remember when you did this and that? And almost all of us knows, know what it's like to have a peer group who knew us one way to radically accuse us when we say we're going to live for the Lord and try and remind us of all the evil things we did or sinful things with them. And then we have family members that do the same thing. And depending on how you lived your life before you gave to Christ is just a depth and degree of how much people can use against you from your past to try and discredit your what. But actually that gives credit to the testimony, right? We saw this last week that the madman, naked and out of his mind, running with the pigs, when he's clothed in his right mind, that's what Jesus did. The city didn't want him clothed, clothed in his right mind, and they asked Jesus to leave. But that man immediately had a testimony about what Jesus had done in his life. So, in fact, whatever the difference is before we come to Christ and when we come to Christ, and then the credibility of our life after Christ, that is the testimony. Now, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, Jesus said. And it, it's common when we give our life to Christ to to go through that. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. When people are new in the faith, they shouldn't be surprised if they're rejected by their peer group, their family, their friends, whatever, co-workers. You can be rejected for all that from people who didn't know your past or grow up with you, but where you grew up and people know you best, your family, they can say things and they can do things to bring out the worst in you by trying to come against you for your shortcomings that they know of your life before you came to Christ. But whom the sun sets, we were singing it, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And if anyone's in Christ or a new creation, all things have passed away. And we have to be guarded in our mind to not let the devil take us backwards to things we can't change from our past. We know that, as it says in Philippians, we have not yet attained, but we press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's forward, onward, and upward with Jesus. And it's, we can never change the past. We have today, we have the obedience for today and the vision for tomorrow and the forgiveness from the past. And we're very wise to live our life that way. The story of Jesus being rejected by his community, it's, it's a tough one. And it says he marveled at their unbelief. So they were astonished with what he did. They would have heard about it. They limited him. And, you know, the other accounts tell us they took him to the edge of the city to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> I mean, they vehemently rejected him as the Messiah of Israel, which we were just singing about a song ago, right? The Messiah. They rejected him. And they had every reason to believe in him. So if they rejected him and his perfect life in their community for 30 years, don't be surprised if you're rejected in your community for however many years you had and how that happens. But as I mentioned recently, sooner or later, when you've got credibility of a walk with the Lord over a prolonged period of time, every family needs a Jesus freak. They really do. 
Every family needs someone at the holiday gathering that's not drinking and can pray for the food. Everyone needs someone at the, holiday, the family gathering and that when a tragedy comes, that they're a plumb line of, of truth and reason, of comfort and hope. Jesus said wisdom is justified by our children. And when we make good decisions with the Lord, as time goes on, we gain that credibility to minister, even with the city and the town that rejects us, not giving us honor in our own uh, community. And I mentioned this recently, and it's, it's not about me, but the focal point, but in my own life, my father, who maybe came to six to ten services that I was actually teaching at, he sat about where Clyde's sitting at every one of them, and he walked out on every one of them. My dad never sat through a Bible study I, I ever taught. And it's not like he got close to the end. He, he walked out early. Again, that's, that journey began 31 years ago when I gave my life to Christ. And I told him that I, I, I would give my life to Christ. I was born again. I was born of the Spirit. And he got really upset with that. I was living with him at the time. But now, 31 years later, I'm the steward of my dad, and I take care of my dad. And I take him to his doctor's appointments, and I take him to go visit mom. And I, and I serve him. And I, the, one of the greatest joys of the last 10 years was when I took my dad home to the very nice place he lives at Sunrise Facility. There's one in Huntington, but he's the one in Carlsbad. And I like to pray with him, pray for him, and he'll let me, but he I got to keep it short, but then he said he wanted to pray for me, and it's the first time in my entire life my dad has ever prayed with, prayed for me. This was in December. So the prophet without honor, it's something that we all encounter in our journey, like even like the surf industry, when I said in 1987, they put in the magazines who's, what's out, and it was Joey Brand by name, you know, and I laugh about it. the four-fin surfboards, color wetsuits, and Joey Brand. No one else by name, just me. And I was without honor in the surf community. But twice the surf community has come back to me and asked me to be the coach of the national teams because they needed a pastor in both those situations. They've asked me to do their memorials. They've asked me to do their weddings. You just let it play out. And like Jesus walking through that mob in Nazareth, you move on to what God is doing and you just don't know how it might come back in your favor. But it's not unusual, and Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor except amongst his own people, his own family, his own household. So don't let that throw you off in the journey with the Lord. And what did Jesus do? It just said he went about the villages in the circuit teaching. He just stayed on track. Unbelief in Nazareth shouldn't keep us from going on to Bethsaida. Unbelief in Nazareth shouldn't keep us from going on to Capernaum and what God wants to do there. We just you stay, you stay on point, and you stay on point with what the Lord's doing. That's what we learned from Jesus in his hometown. Verse 7, and he called the 12 to himself, the apostles, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics or, or coats. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is progressive, and these two passages of scripture are pretty linked together because Jesus is doing ministry and he's on a circuit and he's showing the disciples how to do ministry and then he delegates to them ministry and he sends them out two by two. That's what the Lord's going to do. As we study Jesus in our life, as we look at Jesus and how he was with people 
we learn how he wants us to be with people. And as we see him working in our life, we understand how he can work in other people's lives and how we want to be a part of that happening in their lives. He sent them out two by two. And throughout the book of Acts, when the church history after the time of Jesus here in the New Testament, you always see two by two and the two, two or more. And it's good to have a, a witness. And you see teams of two in the Bible in the New Testament with the church plan and all that stuff. So two by two, they go out for their ministries. We, we need one another. Uh, two is better than one. And we're, we're designed to be interdependent. And in the ministry, it's, there's no really lone, that John the Baptist model is kind of unique to that timeline in the New Testament and the church age. It's, it's two or more. We see that. And we're meant to be a community of faith. The two go out two people. By a matter, it says in the Old Testament, a matter is established by the witness of two or more. So especially even in ministry, when, t- when it's two or more, you're like, whoa, this is a spiritual attack, or wow, this is amazing. This is the Lord. The two or more is an incredible witness to solidify things. Even just yesterday, Pastor Jeremy and I were in the office here praying and discussing a lot of different things in ministry, and we just had one of these moments where we're like, we always invite the Lord to lead our time in prayer, to guide our conversations, to guide our thoughts, and to direct us, because he's the preeminent one in this church, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's his church, and we're just shepherds with little S's underneath the chief shepherd, and it was so cool, because he absolutely spoke to us in concerning ministry matters, and we're just looking at each other like Jesus could have just been sitting in the room. The presence of the Holy Spirit was that powerful, and the affirmation of, the, of steps to take for this church in a favorable light for a vision for the future was just incredible, and it was two or more. Now, God could show me that personally. God could show Jeremy that personally, but when two who are in leadership of the church and pastors are praying collectively, and we both were like, wow, it's just really cool. That witness of two is special, and they went out as two, and they saw the Lord do great things. Now, the positive is they cast out demons. They anointed people to be healed, and they were healed. Their message was powerful, though, wasn't it? They, 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 that people should repent. I was listening to a Billy Graham message a couple days ago, uh, 1971, Birmingham, Alabama, 71 or 72, so you can picture the timeline in American history. And it, Billy was just bringing it, but something he said, he was talking about the sin of sexual immorality, and picture the early 70s, right? And how everything was just so profoundly changing in our society. And he was talking about the new generation casting off the, the parameters that God has defined to the benefit of everybody and that everyone wants to have sex. And he's, and he's saying, I'm not telling you what I'm saying. I'm telling you what Jesus said. And, and he said, now, you can do what the message of Jesus, what you want to do. But I'm telling you, Jesus says, sexuality is from the Lord to be blessed by the Lord in the context of marriage, anything other than that is sin. I'm telling you what God says, and what you want to do with that is your choice for all time and eternity. But you ought to repent. See, we should repent. Repentance is turning from sin that's destroying our lives, for the wage of sin is death, is turning to the Lord for the blessings he has from us. If we don't repent from self-destructive behavior, we will destroy ourselves. So that repenting is a turn of a changing of the mind from a life of rebellion opposed to the Lord in a lifestyle to agreement with the Lord to what's right with the Lord. Or like my sister, you know, being homeless for five years, drugs, alcohol, and all that stuff. She had the epiphany because we kept trying to get in a rehab year after year after year. And she had all the court problems in jail and all this kind of stuff. 
But it suddenly dawned on her that there's very few women that are 50, in their 50s who are do crystal meth and, and are alcoholics that are alive. And she realized they're all dead. And then she had this epiphany that if I don't repent, I'm going to be dead. That this, this sin is, there's a, there's a sin leading to death, verse John says, and crystal meth is, is destruction of the body. Of un, and it's mind-altering in the worst way. It's demonic, without a doubt. It's pharmakia, you know, just, it's terrible. But like, she, she had that turn. And when she turned, the change of thinking, and she purposed in her heart to repent of that, she got it right. Now, remember, I saw her on a Mother's Day two years ago after preaching at uh, Pancho's church up there in Montebello, and I found her on the streets with her grocery cart, and I said, Barbie, th- the next thing in your life is going to rehab and completing rehab. Remember, she used to lead women's Bible studies in the 80s. Okay? Bad men, bad decisions, bad drugs, bad drink, 25 years later. But I said, you're going to have to rep- you have to repent. And I said, if you will, do will, you won't be pushing this grocery cart around. And you'll be restored, and God will bless you. And that's exactly what's happened, as she's been uh, clean now for a year and a half. And having had lunch with her a week ago last Monday, it's, just, it's amazing. Sin brings death. The wage of sin is death. James says that sin is conceived, and it brings forth death at, at birth. And it brings forth death. And the wage of sin is death. It kills us spiritually. It kills us uh, physically. It, it takes a toll on us to live a life of rebellion to God. But we should repent. And when we do, then things go right. And we can be where the blessings are. And all throughout the Bible, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, right up to Moses saying, I, give, I present to you life and I present to you death. Choose life. Right up to Jesus saying the same thing. We choose life or we choose death. And we live with those decisions. As you get older, you just see how people will get one life and they throw it away with foolishness and the folly of sin and self-destructive lives and it's over and there's no redo. You're wise to be at church here tonight. You're wise to be here with the Bible being taught and songs being sung to Jesus about the coming kingdom, which now is and is to come. You are very wise, but narrow is the gate that leads to life and few enter and wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go thereby. So praise the Lord when you leave for tonight that you're at a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, a Jesus-worshiping church, because we should repent. And without the message of repentance, the the power of the cross is reduced to powerlessness by unbelief in people's hearts. God, he died for sin to deliver us from sin, to live the life of blessings intended for us that God has for us. There's a blessed life. And as I approach my 31st wedding anniversary in a week, I'm just reminded how blessed everything God has done in my life. Not always easy, but the blessings. People should repent. And the first words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he sent the apostles out, and the message doesn't change. People should repent of sin, and then they brought a message of hope, a message of faith, healing, casting out demons, and deliverance. And they they brought life when people wanted life. The carbon prince of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives is life. He came that we might have life and that more abundantly. So when people repent, they're passing from death to life and they're blessed. The Gospel of John says that Jesus is the life and light of men. And he comes to bless. He stayed on point when rejected by his community. And then he sent them out. He told them if they rejected, they rejected. What do you say in verse 11? 
Hey, if they don't receive you nor hear you, just shake the dust off your feet. I don't, think, I don't like to think about it that much, but I think how many people I've shared the gospel with in 31 years of ministry that have rejected the gospel clearly, definitively, passionately. And I think about them in eternity, that if they don't respond to the gospel between now and eternity, when they step into eternity, that rejection of the gospel, when I presented it to them, when those books are opened in Revelation 20, that's in the books. I'm, I'm certain of it. Because those books show, well, we know in John 3, it says that the son condemns no one, but the world's already condemned. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world is born in condemnation because of sin and separation from God. So he comes to give life, but men love darkness and don't come to the light. So when you think about the books that are open in Revelation 20 with Jesus at the great judgment at the end of the age, and everyone gives an account to the Lord, that when those books are open, those books are, whatever is in, in those books, it is that which affirms why those people are not going into God's presence for all eternity in heaven, and they're being cast in outer darkness into hell for their rejection of him. So they have to be the books, first of all, of unbelief. And that would, you would certainly encompass pride. It, it would be in there. But it's a record. So it, it's not like a court case where people are trying to build a case like on circumstantial evidence. This is the footage. This is, you know, this is when in 1980, this servant of mine walked up to you and shared the gospel with you and invited you to something and you rejected it. And he said, are you sure? And you mocked him. And he told you that this day would come. You should have heeded the voice of my servant. That's what's going to happen when those books are open. Rejection comes with the gospel. And there's no way around that. Because narrow is the gate, and few enter. So we should never be surprised. But when Jesus said, you shake the dust off your feet, well, it's a testimony against them. But I think it's really a benefit to us because we got to move on. Like in Acts 13, when Paul and, and Barnabas are rejected there in their journey in modern Turkey at one city, they, they shake the dust off their feet, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go their way rejoicing. They go their way rejoicing when prominent women and powerful men expel them from the city. Got to stay on point. It's not so much about shaking the dust off. You have to move on, though, because some of us, dealing with rejection is different for all of us, particularly for the gospel, but you got to move on. You, you can't let rejection of Christ from your life stop you from letting the light shine and choosing to be faithful to what the Lord wants to do in your life. You cannot let it stop you. So you got to just kind of shake it off. You got to shake it off and keep moving on. And I don't shake it off so much that it's something against people like, oh, you wait till the day of the Lord. Not like that at all. Here's the good news. You can, it's your deal. My life's a testimony. Our lives are a testimony. And you can choose life or you can choose death. You can choose blessings. You can choose the curses. You can choose light. You can choose darkness. Justification, condemnation, Christ or Adam, you can choose. It's your choice in the age of time, space, and matter where we have choice. And then it's set when we breathe our last. Verse 14 we read on now. One of my least favorite passages of Scripture in the Gospels, the story of King Herod and John the Baptist. We'll move through this. Having just looked at King Herod the other night, Herod the Tetrarch, the grandson of the great King Herod, who killed the babies in uh, Bethlehem. So this, this is that King Herod the Tetrarch who ruled over the northern part of Israel at this time. Now, King Herod, verse 14, heard of him, Jesus, for his name 
had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it's a prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him, that is John the Baptist, and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an, op- then an opportune day came when Herod on, on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles and high of officers and chief men of the Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask, I give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples, that is the disciples of John the Baptist, heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in the tomb. Indeed, the Bible is brutally honest about the, the human experience, isn't it? This is just as brutally honest. I, I talked Saturday night about the religious leaders when they rejected Jesus Christ, how they crossed a line to be so ravenous and rabid against the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they were supposed to point the nation to and confirm. And there's lines we cross. I just can't even imagine being so given over my sin. Now, Romans chapter 1 tells us three times that God gave people over to their lust and to their depraved minds and their debased thinking and darkened hearts. You know, I think of Herodias, where she married Philip, Herod's brother, who ruled in the highest northern region. She married Philip, and then she obviously lusted for Philip's brother, so she left Philip and married Herod the Tetrarch, who was more powerful than his brother. And John the Baptist, for whatever reason, the greatest of all prophets, called out Herod and Herodias, for this adultery. There's a reference in your Bible to Leviticus where it's told in the Old Testament, you can't do this, right? You know, it's kind of like the Billy Graham thing I was sharing. So John called it out. The thing about the Herods is they're Idumeans. I mentioned this Saturday night. They're Idumeans, which is modern Gaza, that part of Israel. And they understood Judaism of the Old Testament. Now the Herods were trained in Rome, but they understood Jewish culture, Old Testament scriptures. In fact, when Paul the Apostle was speaking to another one of the Herods in the book of Acts, he says, you know what the scriptures say and you know what happened in your region. So they had a higher accountability than say someone like Pilate, who's a Roman. They were from the region. John the Baptist called him out on it. He was incarcerated. But I think, you know, here's this young girl and her, it would seem to be her stepfather is offering her half the kingdom. Like, you know, a rational person would say, half the kingdom? Okay, I'd like to see this, the lakeside property. The, I'd like the five kilometers of lakeside property on the Sea of Galilee up there. I'm going to build some condos. You might think rationally, I'd like the farming land over here, you know, uh, at the bottom of the 
the Galilean region where the Jordan River starts. I'd like some of that farmland. Uh, you know, you might think like assets, long-term planning, just, you know, if you're a practical person. No, give me the head of John the Baptist. See, that's what happens when you resist the Lord. You go nuts. You don't think straight. Like, you can't even think straight. People, when they're fighting God, they, just, they can go out of their minds. Herodias could have repented, and what that looks like, God would know. But she, wants, she so wanted to silence the voice of truth that she has John the head beheaded, John the Baptist beheaded. And they, they brought his head on a platter. There's a brutality. And I, I used to say this. I don't say it as much anymore. Do not overestimate goodness in man and do not underestimate evil in men. Because we aren't as good as we think we are and we're far more evil than we think we are in the human experience. And all you have to do is look at the last two world wars to realize that and to look at the book of Revelation where it's all going to understand that. The human experience in most parts of the world right now is extremely brutal. And we're very blessed to live in this country with the freedoms and laws that preserve a lot of the good things of our society as we know it. Look at the uh, disciples, verse 29. They came and they took the body. It's such a horrible story. And horrible things happen to good people. And people you love die. People you love are killed maliciously. People you love have terrible things happen to them. I just appreciate verse 29. Like these guys were true friends to the end and they show up at prison and they get the body of John the Baptist. They're going to bury their friend. And, you know, since they're associated with him, you might think that they would have a fear for their lives being associated with John the Baptist. But they went and got his body. Sometimes the best you can do is go pick up the body. Let me say that again. Sometimes the best you can do is go pick up the body. But if it's the right thing to do and the honorable thing to do, then go pick up the body. Can we read on? Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all uh, the things, both what they had done, what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and had said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? That's like a year's wages. But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. So this is the first of the miracles. This is the feeding of the 5,000. There's another one that comes later with the feeding of the 4,000. This is an amazing miracle. And again, Jesus is trans-dimensional. He's, he functions in multi-dimensions because he's God. So as a son of God, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He, can, he showed his authority over defilement with leprosy. He showed his authority over sickness with disease and healing people. He 
he shows his authority over the weather. We already saw that. It's everything subject to him. He is the Lord of all. And Jesus does things that are superior to this dimension because he functions in the full dimension of eternity. He's the son of God. Before this chapter is done, he's walking on water. Now, people who reject miracles say, oh, this inspired people to be generous. That's nonsense. Jesus multiplied. This is a supernatural event. He did what we couldn't do. He took the five loaves and two fish, and he multiplied it and fed 5,000 people. There's 12 baskets left over for 12 apostles, so each apostle can learn the lesson that God is more than able to meet our needs when we look to him and that he's got this. These 12 men, minus Judas, are going to change the world. We're a legacy of these 12 men. In the book of Acts, they had to learn that it was not their ability, but their availability. And it was the, the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's word, the apostles' doctrine, and the love of Christ, and that God would do the supernatural to confirm the work and guide them in the work. When I was called into ministry, it wasn't like, this is what I'm going to do to be a really good person. It's like, this is what God's going to do in and through me for the work he wants to do. And it's the same for you. He wants us to know that he's the God of miracles. He's the God of the supernatural. He's the God who's all-powerful over all things. His power has no limits other than the consistency of his character of who he is. His power will never defile his character. God is good and God is light. So all that his power is would never be prone toward evil or destructive things. His power is prone toward justice, what's true, just, noble, virtuous, praiseworthy. And the supernatural is availed is available to the believers. In John 14, Jesus says, I've done greater works, and these declare the Father to you. But he goes, greater works are you going to do? The apostles were told to go and preach the message and tell everyone they preached to that what was given to them is given to them. In other words, the potential for God's supernatural power is available to every generation of the church. And it would, I think personally it would be ludicrous to think other than that. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need his power. We need to believe the miraculous. We, we need to believe God for great things because he wants to show himself strong on behalf of us who believe him and trust in him. He marveled at the unbelief in Nazareth. And when he looks here on us tonight, he wants to marvel at our faith in him that we are willing to attempt great things for the Lord. And we expect great things from the Lord because God is great and God is good and wants to magnify his name at all times, in every generation, through those whose hearts are loyal to him. So when I look at this text and the feeding the 5,000, I go, this is awesome. Even as a kid, growing up in the Catholic Church and going to catechism, it seems like they taught this study all the time. And I always thought it was awesome. I just think it's an amazing story. Jesus was moved with compassion. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And we know from John's account, people are going to show up the next day for more free food. And he's like, you come back for food, not because of the message, but still he has compassion. And out of the multitude, people did come around for the right reasons. He's moved with compassion. The supernatural of God isn't for the exalting of man, but it's, it's for men and women who are moved with compassion for other people. That's where the supernatural is found. That's where the miraculous is found, is when our hearts are yoked with Jesus Christ and we care about people and we're broken for people. And it's not about exalting of ourselves. The supernatural is for those people who are broken and have the heart of the Lord for people who are broken before the Lord. That's where the supernatural is found. 
It's not for those who exalt themselves. It's for those who abase themselves on behalf of others because the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. These apostles came to Jesus and said, send them away. This is beyond us, right? And all ministry is beyond us. It really is because ministry is supernatural. The flesh profits nothing, our carnal stuff. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, is the work of the Lord done. And this is the lesson for the 12 apostles. This ministry night, this, this uh, ministry situation began with, with the apostles saying to Jesus, send him home. Jesus moved with compassion. They're all going to go home. Needs not, needs not met, if you will. And then Jesus says, you feed them. See, when you look at verse 37, you give them something to eat. That, I love that verse. Because he's telling them to do something they can't do. He's telling them to do something that's beyond them. When God puts you in circumstances that are beyond you, that's a good thing. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because we must believe that he is. And he's the reward of those who diligently seek him. God is constantly stretching us and calling us to do things that are out of our comfort zone as we're walking by faith. So he can show himself strong on our behalf. And he's allowing events and circumstances to work together that our confidence would be more in him and less in ourselves. And that we look to the Lord for deliverance. And we look to the Lord for the demonstration of his power to work in the, the things he's entrusted to us. If we ever find ourselves saying, God, this is what you should do. You should really do this. Just send them all home. Oh, you should call down fire against those guys, that village of Samaria. You should do this and you should do that. You know, we should just stop and say, Lord, what is your plan? What is your purpose? What's your will? What's your purpose here? And let the Lord do what he wants to do. That's what we should do. And he says, you give them something to eat. So he calls them to do something that's beyond them. So don't feel bad when you believe God's calling you to do something. Like, Lord, I'm overwhelmed. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. It's completely beyond me. Okay, so let's give that back to the Lord. And the Lord says, what do you got? What do you got here? What's going on? What do you got? What do you got? Well, we got five loaves of bread and two, two fish. Okay, let's work with what you got. Let's work with what you got. And let me multiply it. Let me break it. Let me multiply it. It's a great lesson in ministry. And I'll just move on from this saying like, so many times the Lord's like, you do this. And it's like, I don't even know what I'm going to say. I don't even know what I'm going to do. This is so beyond me. Start here and you do this. And I'll multiply it. What I'm saying is God will multiply his supernatural in our life as we're available to him in when we're moved with compassion to serve other people, he will multiply that availability with good motives and sincere motives for his purposes and his will. He will multiply that and he will show himself strong. He's able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask in his church for his glory. So if he says to you, give them something to eat and all you got is this, then give what you got and let the Lord multiply it. Finally, we close out the chapter in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go be before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he sent them away, he departed a mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. And then he saw them, that is the apostles, straining and rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed 
in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the whole surrounding region, began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So this is the back end to the story of the feeding the 5,000. So Jesus feeds the multitude. The supernatural happens. Each apostle carries like 12 baskets of leftovers, like a basket for each apostle. Like, wow, I think God's teaching us something, right? And then they get in the boat. Jesus goes up the mountain by himself. And then they're rowing contrary. And then he walks on water to them. Now, we know from the, Matthew's account that Peter walked on water. So Peter's like, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And he's like, it is, so come. And so Peter defied the physical laws of our universe. Now, Jesus did it because he's over the physical laws of the universe because he holds the whole universe together. But Peter, through his faith, defied the physical laws of the universe and walked on water. That is just absolutely amazing to me. And I often say about Peter walking on water, man, he sank, but you know, he walked before he sank. I like that. Like he walked on water before he sank. And sometimes you just got to get out of the boat. So Jesus rescued him. They got in the boat and the storm calmed. And it says that they were, they were just, well, he said, be of good cheer. You know, when God reveals his greatness to us and his glory and his power and his might, sometimes it's pretty overwhelming when you really understand that he's the living God. How, you know, it's like the song from the 80s, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. And God is awesome. And when you really get a glimpse of his awesomeness, wow, it can be pretty sobering. And some people need that. Like Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men that they are going to stand before Christ and we urge them to come to Christ. But God is good. And I just can't even imagine, like, we try and put ourselves in the, the, the mind of these apostles, like, it's a ghost. Because no one walks on water, and it's Jesus walking on water. Like, Peter just, well, he walked, and he sank, and he rescued them, and they're both in the boat, and they come in the boat, and the storm stops. It's like, who, how can we even wrap our minds around this moment? But it happened. It literally happened. And it says, we understand why it happened. This is important for us because it says their hearts have been hardened. So when the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 happened and they each had a basket, they didn't get it. You know, and, and this encourages me because sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes God does something so special for us and he intervenes in such a way like we cried, Lord, please, please resolve this, do this. And then, and then he does it and we don't get it. Yeah. And it's like, so I'm going to walk on water to you to, to, so you get it. You're dealing with God. You're dealing with deity, the son of God. Because it says they had not understood about the loaves. And when he walked on water, he was making it very clear to them, you serve me, the living God, the one who walks on water. And even to this day in the Western world, we say like, what, does he think he walks on water or something? Right? We use that analogy when someone thinks they're really good. Like, well, do you walk on water? Yes, yeah, see, walking on water is something only God can do. So in case you miss where that, those fish and loaves multiplied and those 12 baskets came from, I'm God and I do the supernatural and I multiplied and I walked on water. So I'm coming to you and I've called you and this is who you're serving, the living God. It's an affirmation of who he is and his power availed to them and what he has for their lives. It's amazing. And then they you know, get to the other side of the sea 
So they're just thinking like, oh my goodness, like he really is God. And we need to know that in our own lives. We need to have that moment where Jesus comes to us when we're rowing against the, the storm and he's walking on water. We need to, it's one thing to have him break the bread and the fish and feed our basic needs, but we need to see him supernaturally coming to us in the storm when we're sinking. And we need to know that he's God. And we do not want to have hardened hearts that we missed his glory in those situations. We know like, that's the Lord. And uh, talking about me and Jeremy yesterday, we both talked like, this is the Lord right now. Build a little pillar. We know God spoke to us right now in a way that's very special and unique, this very moment. And we knew that. And, And we can't forget those things. We need to know that. We don't want to miss the lessons and harden our heart to God's personal faithfulness in our life. We want, to, we want to get it, and we need to know he's the one that walks on water. And the last thing there, verse 56, close with this thought, as many as touched him were made well. That's that wound with the flow of blood, right? The word got out. You just touched the tassel. Last week, the wound with the flow of blood, right? She touched Jesus. She touched him, and she was healed. And Jesus said, daughter, you're healed. Your faith has healed you. Touching Jesus, they were healed. It leaves us with this last thought that faith does matter. Personal faith does matter. Personal faith does matter. Because the beginning of this chapter is the unbelief. He marveled their unbelief. And the end of this chapter is people believing in who he is and touching him and being healed. They're exact polar opposites. So grab onto that tassel and believe in the power of God for whatever it is we're going through at this time in our life.